Father, once again we come before you and ask that you would take this service that we have dedicated to your worship, and Lord, that you would enable us to do that. Lord, that we would once again allow ourselves to be reminded that you are the audience to whom we sing. And Lord, the victory that you promise is in our lives through faith in your word and in your Son. Lord, we're so glad today. I'm so glad that I can preach. It is finished. That Jesus has done all the work and has obtained the victory. And he will give it to us if we'll trust and follow him. Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship you in true humility and purity of heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would. And turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. How many of you know what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 17? One of the most famous stories in all the Bible, and that's where we're going to start. If you like titles for messages, this morning's title is Realistic Faith. Our theme for this year is the just shall live by his Faith. That's out of the book of Habakkuk. And then the counter to that out of the book of Romans, faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. There's all kinds of faith out there. And uh, today I would like to preach about realistic faith. I believe it was my father-in-law that said there's a fine line between faith and and foolishness. He said, I just never have found the line. And uh, because many of the endeavors that he tried for were considered by many foolish, and yet they were found to be a faith. I will, uh, as long as God gives me memory, I will never forget <clears throat> the response of many preachers when we first approached the purchase of this building here. And uh, it was... Uh, uh, and a, just an unbelievable task. We, we bought the building for $763,204 at closing. We only had about 40 members at that time. Uh, our missions budget <clears throat> was about uh, $20,000 a year, maybe 15, something like that. Uh, a far cry from what's going on today. And... Uh, Someone said, how are you going to pay for that? I don't know. Where are you going to get the money? I said, I don't know. We hope that God's churches will respond. And you know what? Not only did God's churches respond, this church responded. And God used everybody's little bits to make a lot of bit. And uh, you see... What's the difference, and maybe I'll just throw this in here because we're going to do a little contrasting today, is I met literally dozens of men over the years and said, how'd you raise all that money for the building? They said, I got a building I'd like to get. It's about the same price. How how did you do that? And I said, listen, I I didn't do that. God, God did it. I know God did it, but how did you get God to do it for you, you know? It was that kind of thought process there. And um, I said, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. 
Uh, I'm trying to explain to you that do you know that God wants you to be there? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, then God will supply, and he didn't. Same thing happened a few years before when Brother Marshall finally gave me permission to ask his daughter to marry him. If, if I'd had any sense at all, I would have opened a small school seminars because I, I was the first one to marry one of the Marshall girls. She has uh, uh, seven sisters. And, I mean, there was quite a line of guys at that time hoping uh, to become brother-in-laws and all of those kinds of things. And, and the answer was the same. Is it God's will? Oh, absolutely. Well, it didn't happen. <coughs> it must not have been God's will. And you see, one of the greatest examples of extraordinary faith in the Bible, wouldn't David and Goliath come under that category? But I want to challenge you, if we'll examine this, we'll find out that not only David's victory was realistically to be expected, it was reasonable. You see, faith is not this thing of, you know, I'd like to be as rich as Donald Trump. God, you have all the money. Why don't you give me money so I can be rich like Donald Trump? Well, God doesn't want you running dirty beauty contests and filthy evil casinos to make money because it's all about sin. So how's God going to bless you like that? Uh, could I challenge you? He's not. And there's something wrong with you if that's all you desire out of life is something you can put in your hand? Faith is so much more. But I want us to look at a realistic faith here. A faith that is real. A faith that pertains to reality. Sometimes it's funny when you go to preachers' meetings, uh, they always ask for <coughs> a picture of the preacher to put up, especially if there's a lot of preachers preaching. And, and the difference between the little pamphlet you get when the service starts and what stands up in the pulpit with the same name, sometimes quite different. I mean, the picture had hair. And the guy standing behind the pulpit doesn't have it anymore. And the guy in the picture was thin and trim and athletic. And, well, the guy in the, behind the pulpit, well, he just didn't anymore. I mean, things change. You know why? Because we don't like reality. You know, guys accuse women of looking in the mirror and seeing things that aren't there. That is not true. Women see what's there and they fix it. That's what makeup and all that stuff is about. You know what guys do when they look at the mirror? I look just like I did when I was 21. Liar! But that's reality, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to have a faith that's real? 
instead of pretend? A, a faith that actually reflects what is going on around you? A real faith? That's what the word realistic means. It means pertaining unto that which is true and, and reasonable. We live in a world where reason has taken ascendancy over faith, they say. Is it reasonable to believe that mankind came from monkeys? Is that reasonable? Some say it is. But I just want to ask you a question. What are these called? Thumbs. They're called opposable thumbs. You know why? Because you can move them. Monkeys do not have thumbs. They have five fingers. Where did your thumb come from? It's not in the genetic pool. So you have to reason kind of like this. This was actually printed <coughs> somewhere in the Arizona desert. Somebody read it years ago. It said... <coughs> The cactus, as it was developing, realized that in the desert, people would want the water stored in the cactus, so it grew thorns to protect itself. How many of you knew cactuses were, cacti, excuse me, were that smart? Or maybe God made it that way. You see, I want to challenge you that faith can be real and can be and should be real and should be realistic and reasonable and everywhere you see faith in the Bible, true faith, you're going to see those two things. And so don't let the world push you into an idea that our faith is not real. Maybe we ought to just start with this story. You've told it so many times of the great atheist that would get up and curse God and do all of these horrible things. And a man finally was able to ask him a question. He said, sir, I can't answer all your questions. He said, but this is the question I have for you. He says, can you show me one man that by following your philosophies and your teachings used to be a drunkard and lazy and not work and not take care of his children. And because he listened to you and he followed you, that his life has been changed and he became a good father and a good husband and a good man. He said, can you show me one that because he followed you, his life changed for the better? He said, and if you can show me one, and I doubt that you can, he said, I'll bring you a thousand that have been changed by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, is it real? Is it reasonable? And I want you to keep those two words in your mind as we go through the story of David because at first look, it's neither real nor reasonable that a little boy, maybe 17 years old, could defeat a trained warrior that's roughly ten times his bulk and mass and strength and agility and all of these things. 
But let's read the story here. And so we start in verse 16. It says, And the Philistines drew near morning and evening. I'm sorry. Um, wait, wait a minute. <clears throat> Uh, verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1, uh, I got ahead of myself. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azka in Ephesdamin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. So here's the picture. Philistines get all their armies together, and they go down and camp in the land of Israel. This is provocation. (coughs) Excuse me. This is their declaration of war. (coughs) And so... Israel, in trying to answer this, they get all their armies together. And so you have a mountain over here and a mountain over here and a nice big valley in the middle. You know what the valley's for? That's where the fight's going to happen. And so the armies are facing each other. And they're ready to fight. And all of a sudden, the army of the Philistines start parting. And they look, and they're looking at the heads of all the soldiers of the Philistines, and they see somewhere right about here, all of a sudden Goliath comes walking through, pushing them out of his way, like a giant from the horror movies. Nine foot, six inches tall. Do you realize that his head is just that far below the basketball rim? How would you like to play basketball with him on your team? You just stand there, we'll throw you the ball, and you put it in, right? Um, so we have this guy coming, and it's very interesting. I wish we had time to spend the whole morning on Goliath and how big he was and, and all of this stuff. But here was his challenge. And we start here. In verse 8, And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, (coughs) then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then ye shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man, then we may fight together. Now, that's easy to say if you're nine foot six. And this is a whole other sermon. But why do we have to accept the challenge of the world? He may have been nine foot six. But he's got to go to sleep sometime. Amen? And if you get three five-foot guys, aren't they, uh, aren't they 15 feet tall? I mean, come on.
if the armies of Israel had just ran down off that mountain and started hacking and hewing into Philistines, there wouldn't have been a battle. Whole nother sermon. But they accepted the challenge of the world. That one of their guys had to fight one of their guys. Now, the world always puts out a challenge that is unfair. And you never have to accept it. But Saul did. And so for 40 days, you have two armies camped beside each other. And every morning they get ready for battle. Every morning Goliath comes out. And every morning all the children of Israel run back like scared little girly men because nobody's going to fight this guy. And by the way, how many of you are standing in line to fight Goliath? I mean, you got to be a little realistic here. It doesn't make a lot of sense to fight somebody that's nine foot six inches tall. And a trained warrior. And by the way, you read this stuff. How many of you ever did shot put in high school? Or they give you that eight pound steel ball and you're supposed to throw it? Well, the head on Goliath's spear was somewhere around 12, 13 pounds. Now, you don't want to make it too heavy so you can't throw it. But if you've ever tried one of those eight-pound shot puts, it's like, oh, uh, you see the guys in the Olympics, da-da-da, you try it. <clears throat> see if you can get ten feet. But Goliath was not just this big ogre that couldn't move. He was a warrior. He was not only big... He was fast. He was equipped. He was able to fight. And no one would fight him. Well, you got to understand, armies, if they're going to fight, they need to eat. They run out of food. And so David, go, uh, David's father says, hey, <coughs> your four older brothers are in Saul's army. Don't know what's going on down there. Why don't you go on? It's been 40 days. That's an awful long time. They're going to need some more food. So I want you to take this down. And he had a gift of some cheeses to the captain, you know, that makes the captain treat your boys a little better. I mean, Jesse was just doing what was normal in his day. Nothing wrong or dishonest about this. And so... He, he did that, and David goes down to the battlefield at the direction of his father. This is the most important part of this whole thing. So many people go out and try to prove themselves somehow, and they want to blame it on faith. Faith doesn't prove you. Faith proves God. Do we got that? Faith is not about you. Everything in this world is about you. The clothes you wear, the perfume, stinky water you put on, all that stuff. It's all about you. The thing I don't get is you're supposed to put one of them dirty, stinking cigarettes in your mouth and everybody's supposed to like you. I don't, I don't know how that works. I think it would make people run away, but... They, that's what all the advertisements say. 
Just don't believe the advertisements. Amen? It's not about you. Faith is about God. And so David goes down there, not of his own accord, under his father's direction. And he gets there. And look what happens here. It says here in verse 20, And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. Now, do you see how ridiculous this is? They've been doing this for 40 days. We're going to fight today. They shout for the battle. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. And then Goliath comes out and they go, Not me, not me, not me. And they all run away. Every day for 40 days they've been doing this. The only difference was that today, David heard the challenge. Now what was David's first response? How many of you know the story? This is why Sunday school is important, so you know the stories. We don't have time to go through all the details today, and so you'll have to, to read uh, this story if you don't know it thoroughly. But David went around to the other men that were in the army and said, Who's going to fight the Philistine? Not me, not me. Don't you know what Saul's going to... And David found out that Saul had made all these promises. You know that faith never works in response to the promises and the blessings of men. Faith never works that way. Faith only responds to the Word of God. It's important. You see, this is the difference between an unrealistic faith and a realistic faith. This is the difference between a reasonable faith and an unreasonable faith. A realistic faith is all about God. It reflects the Word of God. It shows a total dependence upon God. You see... Nobody was willing to fight. David checked with the army. In fact, his checking with men in the army got Saul's attention and Saul called him in. Now, could you imagine being the king, the leader of the army, head and shoulders above all that's in Israel, and talking to this, the Bible says that he was ruddy and of beautiful countenance. That meant he was a, he was a pretty boy. That meant he was just one of those guys that you look at and you say, oh man, butter won't melt in his mouth. He just such a sweet little boy. That's what David looked like. You didn't look at him and say, wow, he, boy, I think this guy could do it. No, it was like, him? He's got everything that we all wish we had. But... Being a warrior, that's not, that's not part of it. You see, nobody would go. But who had the Philistine be, uh, cursed in his desire to get somebody to fight with him? He cursed the entire nation of Israel. He cursed their king. And he cursed their God.
You see, David understood what the cause was. One of the famous verses here, is there not a cause? The cause is the testimony and the goodness of God. Could the God of Israel provide someone who could fight the God of the Philistines? That was what, that's what Goliath made the real conflict. And so I want you to understand that David, out of all the people here, got the real issue and said, you're not fighting against man. God can use anybody. How many of you believe that? Well, how many of you are ready to get in line and get used? Here, only David was. You know, some ways you can know that God wants to do something is you'll find yourself the only one there. Uh, That just might be faith. You see, God doesn't need an army. He needed a willing heart. Now, David had some things, and faith always builds upon truth that's already there. David had been keeping his father's sheep. And what happened? A lion came up to kill the sheep. Well, what's the shepherd's job? It's to protect the sheep. So what does that mean David had to do if he was going to fulfill the duty which he had? He was going to have to fight the lion. And he did and killed it. And a bear came along on another occasion. Now, I don't know which one's worse, honestly, a lion or a bear. I'm glad I've never had to tangle with either one, to be honest with you. But here's the key. What was David doing? He was doing the job his father gave him to do. That was take care of the sheep. If he was going to take care of the sheep, he had to fight the lion and the bear. And he did, and God gave him the victory. Now David is here on the battlefield with the armies of Israel and his brothers are soldiers in the army. And as a member of the nation of Israel, this enemy has cursed both you and your God. What is your duty to do? Not defend God. God doesn't need defending. But to show the enemy that the God of Israel is real. You see, that's the difference between an unrealistic faith and a realistic faith. An unrealistic faith shows people about you and how smart you are and how good you are and how strong you are. A realistic faith deals with how strong God is and how good God is and how powerful God is. Sometimes those are hard to discern in everyday life situations. Not too hard to discern in the Valley of Elah, was it? Hello? If David was going to honor the God of Israel, somebody was going to have to defeat the Philistine champion. 
Amen? By the way, don't try to realize your inner champion. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Try to defeat it. That's what faith does. Amen? And you see, David did not seek the battle. David did not ask for the battle. David was not trying to prove himself. But no one else would go. If no one else will go, is it not reasonable that you should? Has anybody got a problem with that line of reasoning? That, That makes sense, doesn't it? If no one else will do it, it must be done. Somebody's got to do it. Then maybe you're the one that ought to do it. And that's the way David thought. You see, David was not thinking about the strength of the giant, his training, his abilities, all of his weaponry. Here's what David was thinking about. He was thinking about the God that had parted the Red Sea and destroyed the entire Egyptian army. He was thinking about the God that knocked down the walls of Jericho flat so that every man went straight before him. Now, if God can do all of those things, is defeating one big ugly Philistine that big of a deal? All of a sudden, it becomes extremely reasonable, doesn't it? What did God do to Dathan and Abiram and those who cursed Moses, God's leader, and said, we're not going to follow you and blaspheme God of Israel? What happened to those people? The ground opened up and swallowed them alive. What happened to the children of Israel that said they wouldn't follow God and go into Canaan land? Forty Years they wandered in the wilderness until they were all dead. You know, David was the kind of guy that said, I don't want to be in the wanderings of the wilderness. I I don't want to be one of those guys that goes down in history as not believing in God or not following Him. If we're going to follow God, we've got to fight the battle. And is it realistic to believe that God could give the victory? Absolutely. Because God had given the victory so many times before to anyone that defied the God of Israel. It's not that big of a problem for God. Now, if David had been thinking about himself... This thing had been totally nuts. Crazy. Without any foundation. But David wasn't thinking about himself. You see, faith is always based on the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You know, maybe if we ask God to let us do something that would bring a good testimony to His grace and His goodness... I think that's one of the reasons God gave us that building in Brooklyn. You know how many church buildings get turned into condominiums and all kinds of things around here? 
My, uh, Brother Newberger had a chance to meet with the borough president there in Brooklyn. And he said, boy, I, I love what you're doing. If you need any help, you call my office. We're going to be calling. I'm sure that we're going to be calling. We had a professor from Columbia who was there to evaluate part of the roof problems. And, I mean, the man had tears in his eyes. He said, I just can't believe what you're doing here. This is so wonderful. He said, well, God's doing it. Oh, yeah, but you're here, you know. But I I believe God's going to give us some miracles. He already has given us quite a few, amen. And we're going to need a lot more. But you see, it's absolutely reasonable to expect that God had an interest in defeating Goliath because Goliath had cursed God. Amen? It was absolutely realistic for David to believe that God could use him because David happened to be there at the direction of his father, not David's direction. David had dealt with some pretty serious events in the past, though they were very small in comparison to Goliath. But David said, if God could give me the victory over a lion to keep doing my duty as a shepherd and over a bear, is it not reasonable and realistic to expect that God could give me victory over this Philistine as a servant of the Most High God? And we know what happened. Goliath got a headache. That little stone out of David's sling found the only open spot in his armor. Right there. I mean, can't you just see them great big old eyeballs going cross-eyed as he gets tipping back and forth? And everybody's waiting. And I love this part. You have to forgive me. Goliath falls. Now, what happens to the guy bearing the shield in front of him? Can I challenge you? He is making distance between him and that guy that just killed the big monster behind me. Huh? You see, Goliath is down. Goliath knows he's dead. Well, if you can know you're dead, he does. But the Philistine army doesn't know that he's dead yet. And so I just, the Bible tells it so wonderfully. David gets up on the Philistine. Which kind of tells us that he was probably laying face up. And David stands on him and draws his sword out. Now remember, Goliath is nine foot six inches tall. His sword, probably a little longer than the average sword, wouldn't you think? And he pulls that great big sword out. And I can just see this teenager going, wow, this thing's heavy. Chink! And you hear the blade hit the ground on the other side of Goliath. Now, the entire Philistine army knows. Goliath is dead. No no questions at this point. They're, they're not going to revive him. And if you think I'm being gross, just turn on your TV for 30 seconds. Nothing compared to what's in your Bible. 
and the victory is won. When you read Hebrews chapter 11, it says David won the battle by faith. If we look at it biblically, it was absolutely reasonable. Was it not? It was realistic for David to expect God to get the victory. And when you compare Goliath with God, is there any comparison? And the fact that God loves to use little silly things to defeat great big things, as he used the nation of Israel's slaves in the land of Egypt to destroy the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that time, he used an old broken down shepherd that had committed murder and lived in exile for 40 years in the backside of the desert to be the man that would lead Israel. God has a habit of taking broken, dumb, worthless things and using them to destroy the best the world has to put up. See, that's faith. How many like to participate in a realistic, reasonable faith existence? I'll tell you this, scare you half to death sometimes. But see, it's not about you, it's about God. Amen? Now, we're going to try to get one quick one in and then make a few conclusions. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Faith worked for David. Faith didn't work for the apostles in this story. Jesus had been teaching. And uh, in verse 35, it says, In the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, his disciples, Jesus is speaking here, let us pass over unto the other side. So Jesus has been teaching all day on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he tells his disciples at the end of the day, his night is coming on. I want you to go to the other side. I want you to take me to the other side. Let's go to the other side. Now, was that reasonable? Yeah, the sea is only five miles across. Not a big deal. They had passed there many times. The the disciples, Peter, James, John, were all fishermen. They'd grown up on the Sea of Galilee. How many times had they been across? I mean, they, they had the place memorized. This was not difficult for them. Was there a realistic belief that they could get across the sea? Absolutely. How many times had they crossed before? But this time didn't work, did it? See, let's read. It says, verse 37, There rose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he, Jesus, was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. 
And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no... What's that last word? How is it that ye have no faith? Well, this... David was an illustration of faith. This is an illustration of no faith. You see... These disciples were looking to their experience. They were looking to past events. And all of that, instead of like David, that drew David's attention to God in his holiness and his goodness and his strength, it drew their attention to themselves. And they said, hey, we can handle this. We can't do the miracles, we can't do the teaching, but we can get to the other side of the sea. That's not a problem. We got it, Lord. You ever wonder why the Lord's asleep sometimes and you feel like you're drowning? Well, maybe it's because you didn't start out with faith. Maybe it's because you told the Lord to go take a nap. You see, he's not going to do something unless you're believing in him. Why would the disciples, how humbling would it have been for the disciples to get down on their knees and say, Now, Lord, before we cross, we want to pray and ask you to help us get across the lake. How many times have they been across the lake without praying? Who knows? Nobody could count. But you see, something different was going to happen this time. See, when Jesus says we're going across, guess where you're going? You're going to go across. Now, you can go kicking and screaming. Uh, That's about where the disciples were when they woke up Jesus, let me tell you. And and you look at what happened here. It says the storm came up. Did they wake up Jesus? No. The waves came up. Did they wake up Jesus? No. The boat was a third of the way full. Did they wake up Jesus? No. The boat is now half full. Don't you think you'd be pressing the panic button about now? No, these guys didn't press the panic button until the water outside the boat was here and the water inside the boat was there. I mean, we are dying. And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. Can you see him laying on a pillow with his head going up the bow of the boat and the water soaking him from the waist down? I mean, I love to paint pictures like that in my mind. I wish I could take what's up here and put it on a screen for people to see it sometime. But I'm glad you can't. Amen? You see, Jesus condemned their fear because they were more concerned about the storm and what they could do than they were about Jesus and what he could do. In fact, when Jesus stood up and rebuked the wind and the waves and everything was still, 
They were even more terrified than they were of drowning a few minutes before. That's not faith. I've seen people, let's pray, 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 pray. Hey, God did it! Wow! It worked! That's not faith. David did not walk out meeting Goliath expecting Goliath to win. David walked out to meet Goliath expecting that God would win. There were no doubts in his mind. you know why? Because it was perfectly realistic and reasonable according to what David knew about the Word of God that Goliath must die that day. Is there anybody here that doesn't see that? Please, please see me after church. We'll take the time to help you understand that. It's perfectly reasonable that Jesus could calm the seas and stop the wind, is it not? He's God. He is the Creator. Creation must answer to the Creator. Some Jehovah's Witnesses take that verse in Revelation that says he is the beginning of the creation of God and see, see there, Jesus was the first thing created. Wrong! He's the source. He's where creation came from. That's why he's the beginning. You see, you have to understand your Bible in context. I don't know how many people over the years have said, Ah, you just believe in that pie in the sky by and by. I "I do not. I'm going to have a whole lot more than pie when I get to heaven. I can have pie right here on earth. Good pies. But when I get to heaven, it's going to be a whole lot more than that. You know what this book tells me? This book tells me that when Jesus spoke those words on the cross, in the Hebrew it was only one word, that he finished all the work that God demanded for the payment of sin forever. And I've had people over the years question that. How could could the work of one man Solve the problems of the sins of the whole world. Well, that one man was God. Is that, is that too hard to figure out? There's an awful lot said about love today. Uh, I want to challenge you. The Bible says, God. Is love. And if we take that statement at its face value, which I believe we should, what greater understanding could we have of the concept of love than the God of heaven? sent His Son to die in my place and take my punishment for me so I could be set free 
from the judgment and the wrath of God which I so richly deserve. Not because of anything that I've done, but because He loves me, I have the opportunity to love Him back. That's what salvation is, my friend. And if you're here today and you don't have that, you can get it. The Bible says, but as many as received Him, to them, not to everybody, everybody isn't going to be saved. I always cringe when someone says, oh, we're all serving the same God. There's part of me just wants to scream at the top of my lungs, no, we're not. Whole nother sermon. We can go through the characteristics of your God versus the God of the Bible, and your God will always come up short. No religion that has ever been invented by mankind gives us this picture of God's love. That God Himself became a man and lived among us and was so much a man that people looked at Him and said, you can't be God. And yet was so much God when He stood up in the midst of the storm and said, wind be still, sea calm down that those inanimate molecules that were moving around by the forces of nature said, yes, sir, and stopped. The power that called Lazarus out of the grave after he had been dead four days. You see... People say, well, it's, it's unreasonable to believe that Jesus could pay the price for the sins of the whole world. Well, then, let me ask you, what is reasonable, my friend? Someone said, well, it makes absolutely perfect sense that we should do good things to pay the price for our wrong things. I said, okay. That makes sense to you. I said, but what happens if you commit murder? How many good things do you have to do to bring that person back to life? Uh, uh, well, well, you can't. But it's not talking about murder. I'm talking about the little sins. How many of you have ever said something that hurt another human being? Would you simply just... I'm lifting my hand. I've done that. How many of you have done that? If you've been honest, say, come on. You can't be honest in church. Where are you going to be honest? How many good things do you have to say to take away the hurt that you caused? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will really hurt me. Isn't that true? You see, you can't erase your sins no matter how many good works you do. It doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, I don't know anything so offensive as a criminal on the stand being tried for a crime saying, but you've got to look at all the good things I did. Give me a break. You're not on trial for the good things. You're on trial for the bad thing. I've heard people accuse God of being unkind because He made a place called hell. Well, you read your Bible. That place was made for the devil and his angels. 
But what in the world is God supposed to do when you refuse to accept everything that Jesus has done on the cross? What can He do? Let you into heaven anyway? Make heaven like it is here on earth now? God's not going to do that. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, no church could do what Jesus did. No man or group of men could do what Jesus did. Because Jesus is God. This puts our attention on Jesus. As one preacher put it so plainly and eloquently at the same time, he said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. He says, nobody's better than anybody there because we're all sinners coming before the place where God paid for all our sins. And so my question is to you. Is it realistic to expect that if I obey the words of this book that I can know I'm going to heaven? I'll tell you it is. Because I've seen the changes that God makes in people's lives. I've seen the changes He makes in my life tell you one thing as I get older I am just more and more impressed with the patience that God has for us what he puts up with from us only God could do that how many of you just say amen I'm glad God's patient with me But see, you can't go to heaven unless you accept the gift. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you haven't done that, you know what? Today would be a perfect time. Right now. If you have questions, we have people here that have the Bible would be happy to spend some time with you to show you how you can know. Not based on my words, because, you see, faith doesn't draw you to men. Faith draws you to God. Amen? Faith is based on what's written in this book. You see, I have a right to believe the Bible. As a pastor, I've studied the other religions. I could keep you here till one thirty talking about the differences. I could keep you here all day if my voice would hold out. But the only thing that makes any sense as far as man and his sin and God is concerned is what's written in this book. Nothing else makes a lick of sense. You have to believe the most abstract, unusual, bizarre things to get past the simplicity that is in this book. Now, what kind of faith do you have? You know, God's still in the work of miracles. 
I'll go on record, raising $107,000 at the Heartland Home Missions Conference is a miracle. Not only that, never been done before. I'll tell you what, that's not me. It's not Brother Mike. But it is God. Because He likes to do things. He likes to save sinners. In fact, he loves to save sinners. And he wants you to live for him a life of faith that is both reasonable and realistic. He hasn't called you to do the job of the Apostle Paul. He's called you to do the job of whoever the name of that person is that you see when you look in the mirror. Amen? That's what God has called you to do, and the church is here to help. That's where we get encouragement. That's where we get strength. That's where we go when we are hurting and when we have failed. Because we can get comfort because we all fail. But together, we can serve God as His church. And all God's people say. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to understand the difference between a realistic and reasonable faith versus a fake one. And Lord, Lord, that we would so desire to have that real faith. Lord, my first prayer is for those that might be here today that do not know you as their Savior. They have no assurance of eternity. Lord, I pray that they would not leave this building without letting someone at least show them what the Bible says about how they may know their sins are forgiven and heaven's their home. We pray for the Christians that are just struggling with life and with sin that they would begin to realize that the only key, the only way to deal with all of the problems of life, even the things we think we can handle, is faith. The disciples couldn't even get across the lake. Lord, how in the world do we expect to live for you without you living in us? Lord, we ask you to work. During this time of invitation, That each one here would surrender to you what needs to be surrendered. That we would forsake and leave that which needs to be left. And Lord, that you would be able to use us to draw this world's attention to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as Brother Franz comes to lead us.